You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. It's Kelly. Welcome back. I am so excited, finally, to be reading you the NAMS position statement, the 2022 Hormone Therapy Position Statement of the North American Menopause Society. So pretty excited to finally read this to you. This is a document that, as it says, came out in 2022. It has like a 20-page document. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I'm going to read the important stuff. I'm going to try to, I want to see, I don't know if I'm going to put my personal opinion in here or not, but so many people ask like, what do I bring to my doctor or where, where are these guidelines whenever I cite something on Instagram? And I want to be able to say, Hey, go to this episode. Just listen to this when you're in the car. So you understand the guidelines. You can send people to this episode. Now you have it in audio form. Otherwise go to North American Menopause Society, um, and it's in the journal Menopause, the Journal of the North American Menopause Society, volume 29, number seven, page 767 to 794, coming out in 2022. So this is currently the most up-to-date document on their position statement. So, drum roll, here we go. Hormone therapy remains the most effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms and the genital urinary syndrome of menopause and has been shown to prevent bone loss and fracture. I'm kind of reading the important stuff in the uh, abstract right now. For women aged younger than 60 years or who are within 10 years of menopause onset and have no contraindications, the benefit-risk ratio is favorable for treatment of bothersome vasomotor symptoms and prevention of bone loss. For women who initiate hormone therapy more than 10 years from menopause onset or who are aged older than 60, the benefit-risk ratio appears less favorable because of the greater absolute risks of coronary heart disease, stroke, venous thromboembolism, which is a blood clot, and dementia. So that's the important stuff in the abstract. So here we go. I'm going to pull out all of the, I've already read it and I've already highlighted and underlined things. So basically that's going to, this is going to be the highlighted underlined version of the 2022 NAMS position statement. NAMS acknowledges that no single trial findings can be extrapolated to all women. The Women's Health Initiative, as the largest randomized controlled trial of hormone therapy in women aged 50 to 79 years and its findings were therefore given prominent consideration. However, it's important to note that the WHI employed just one route of administration, which was oral, one formulation of estrogen, which was conjugated equine estrogens, and only one progestogen, which we don't use today. Casperson, insert opinion here. We use estradiol and micronized progesterone for most formulations, which are considered bioidentical, which are considered as close to what the body makes. So even the, the drugs that we used for the Women's Health Initiative are not the hormones we now use. And many consider the hormones that we now use to be the safer formulations. With limited enrollment, the WHI had limited enrollment of women with bothersome vasomotor symptoms, which are a reminder, hot flashes and night sweats, who were aged younger than 60 years or who were fewer than 10 years from menopause onset, the group of women for whom hormone therapy is currently primary indicated. So basically what they're saying is the Women's Health Initiative enrolled older people who were asymptomatic because they didn't let people with symptoms enroll because then they would know that they were on the study drug and not the placebo. So we cannot extrapolate the Women's Health Initiative data to these younger women for whom which menopause hormone therapy is currently indicated. Remember, young women is age less than 60 or within 10 years of onset of menopause. In addition, the WHI trials did not include women with early or premature menopause. They go on to discuss risks and saying when you discuss risks with women, if you can say if you have level one, level two, or level three recommendations, level one are your strongest recommendations, level three are based on consensus and expert opinion, and then absolute risks is a much more accurate way of describing things than the relative risks. Relative risk is the ratio of event rates in two groups, whereas absolute risk is the absolute difference in the event rate between two groups. You know, what's super annoying is that most studies state relative risk and not absolute risks. Absolute risks are more useful to convey risks and benefits in the clinical setting. So they talk about 
formulations, dosing, routes of administration, and safety. They talk about estrogens first. There's uh, multiple different ones. Prescription formulations of micronized 17-beta estradiol are identical to the structure of estradiol that is produced by the ovaries. Estradiol is reversibly converted to estrone. And ethanol estradiol is a synthetic estrogen primarily used in combination with a progestin and hormone contraceptives. Birth control is different than the estradiol hormone therapy. That comes up a lot when people are like, I had X, Y, and Z symptoms with birth control. These are different drugs. Hormone replacement therapy is as close to what the ovaries make as possible. They're considered bioidentical. Please see all my other podcasts for what I think about bioidentical, but it's there to make you make you feel like these are as close to what the ovaries produce as possible. And then they talk about progestogens, which is a general category that includes synthetic progestins and progesterone. Progesterogens are commonly co-administered with estrogen in women with a uterus, and there's several different types. Micronized progesterone is structurally identical to the progesterone produced by the corpus luteum, again, in the ovaries. Progestogen, again, which means a progesterone or progester, progestin product. So progestogen indication is needed for endometrial protection. When I, when, you know, when I go off and say like estrogen doesn't cause cancer, and then people will be like, but it can cause uterine cancer. Yes, we know that, which is why we give you a progestogen micronized progesterone when you're taking an estrogen to mitigate that risk. And it that risk goes back to baseline. Remember, risk is not zero. Uterine cancer risk within the population is not zero. But if you're taking a progesterone with an estrogen, your risk goes down to what baseline risk is. Chronic unopposed endometrial exposure to estrogen increases the risk for endometrial hyperplasia or cancer by about 5 to 10% is what other studies show. In the Women's Health Initiative, use of continuous oral conjugated equine estrogens plus medroxyprogesterone acetate daily was associated with a risk of endometrial cancer similar to placebo, with a significant reduction of risk after a median 13 years cumulative follow-up. So women who are on the study drug had less risk of endometrial cancer compared to women who are on placebo. A systematic review suggested an increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia with micronized progesterone containing estrogen plus progesterone therapy. A meta-analysis suggested increased risk of endometrial cancer with non-continuous combined estrogen-progesterone therapy, but not with continuous estrogen-progesterone therapy. Oral micronized progestin should be adequately dosed for prevention of endometrial hyperplasia. Example, if you're going to do it for like cyclical, so like, so you do have some bleeding, like some people just want to take it half a month. They want you to take it at a 200 milligrams a day for 12 to 14 days a month. And then they also say that using a levonorgestrel containing intrauterine device, so like a Marina or Kylina are the two progestin secreting IUDs that's off label for endometrial protection, but it's again, considered pretty standard at this point. In women using estrogen progestin therapy, unscheduled bleeding occurring more than six months after initiation should be investigated. It says they talk about routes of administration. Meta-analysis of estrogen preparations found no evidence of a significant difference between transdermal estrogen progestin therapy and oral estrogen progestin therapy for alleviating vasomotor symptoms. Transdermal estradiol and oral conjugated equine estrogens are similarly effective in alleviating vasomotor symptoms. However, clinical trials directly comparing risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, breast cancer, and blood clot associated with various estrogen routes and doses are lacking. So a lot of people think that the non-oral route for various reasons is safer than the oral route, but we don't have direct clinical trials looking at this. The next part I think is super important. It talks about safety and they go through many different studies. Certainly pull up this, look at the resources if you want to dig deeper in it. We know that these drugs are incredibly safe, but there are always risks with taking medications. There's risks with taking placebo. Like stuff happens to you when you take the placebo. So I, know, I never want to downplay and say there's no risk to hormone therapy, but the relative risk is very, very low. So here we go. Jumping into safety. During the active treatment phase of the Women's Health Initiative, a higher incidence of breast cancer, which was still considered rare, and they define rare. Rare is somewhere between 1 in 10,000 and 1 in 1,000. So rare, increased risk, 
of breast cancer was seen in women assigned to conjugated estrogen plus medroxyprogesterone acetate, so estrogen and progestin, compared with placebo. But remember, you guys, the placebo group had previously been given estrogen, so it was falsely lower because we know estrogen decreases your risk of breast cancer. And again, in the Women's Health Initiative, there was a reduced incidence in women assigned to conjugated estrogen alone. Those are the women who've already had a, had a hysterectomy compared with placebo. Meta-analysis of studies in which most participants were aged older than 60 and had some degree of comorbidity shows that estrogen progestin therapy is associated with small increases in the risk of a coronary event, venous thromboembolism, stroke, breast cancer, and gallbladder disease. So this point shows why we think it's safest to start this in age less than 60. Again, risk is small. They say small increases in risk, but that risk goes up the older you are when you start hormone therapy. And they also go on to say that the oral formulation of estrogen probably has a higher risk of blood clot than the transdermal. The choice of progestogen may also affect risk for blood clot with micronized progestin potentially being less thrombogenic than other progestins. Again, we don't have head-to-head trials on this. Observational studies have not demonstrated an increased risk of blood clot with transdermal estrogen therapy. And limited observation data suggests less risk with transdermal versus oral, but comparative randomized control trial data, again, are lacking. Overall, estrogen and estrogen progestin therapy are each associated with rare increased risk of gallbladder disease, stroke, blood clot, and urinary incontinence. In women in the Women's Health Initiative aged 50 to 59 years, so these are the young people, estrogen plus progestin or estrogen alone did not increase cancer mortality or cardiovascular mortality after a median of 18 years follow-up compared with placebo. In women aged 50 to 59 years at randomization, all-cause mortality was significantly reduced in the pooled trials, so estrogen, progestin, and estrogen compared to placebo. So what this means is all-cause mortality for the younger women aged 50 to 59 was decreased by 31%. Now, not many people who are aged 50 to 59 die in the first place. There was a decent amount where they actually could say you did die less if you were taking this drug. And Alzheimer's disease or dementia mortality was reduced in women using estrogen alone. Hazard ratio, again, 0.74, which means relative risk reduction of 26%. And in the pooled trials. So if estrogen alone or estrogen plus progestin decreased Alzheimer's disease and dementia mortality after a mean of 18 years follow-up. After a median of 20 years follow-up, The lower breast cancer mortality in women assigned to estrogen alone versus placebo persisted, whereas breast cancer mortality was not significantly different in women assigned to conjugated estrogen plus medroxyprogesterone acetate versus placebo. So basically, if you were on estrogen and you got breast cancer, you had less mortality than somebody who was diagnosed with breast cancer who had not been on estrogen. Contraindications for oral and transdermal hormone therapy include unexplained vaginal bleeding, liver disease, prior estrogen-sensitive cancer, including breast cancer, prior coronary heart disease, stroke, MI, or venous thromboembolism, or personal history or inherited high risk of thromboembolic disease. Most common adverse events of hormones included nausea, bloating, weight gain, fluid retention, mood swings, which they think were progesterone-related, breakthrough bleeding, headaches, and breast tenderness. So here's the key points in the safety section of the NAMS physician statement. The appropriate, often lowest, effective dose of of systemic estrogen consistent with treatment goals that provides benefits and minimizes risk for the individual woman should be the therapeutic goal. So basically, they're saying use the lowest dose that you need, level three evidence there. The various formulations, doses, and routes have comparable high efficacy for relieving basomotor symptoms. That's level one data. Formulation, dose, and route of administration for hormone therapy should be determined individually and reassessed periodically level three data. Different hormone therapy doses, formulations, and routes of administration may have different effects on target organs, potentially allowing options to minimize risk, level two data. The appropriate formulation, dose, and route of administration of progestogen is needed to counter the proliferative effects of systemic estrogen on the endometrium, level one data. 
Overall, the increased absolute risks associated with estrogen progestin therapy and estrogen therapy are rare, less than 10 per 10,000 individual years, and include increased risk for blood clot gallbladder disease. In addition, estrogen progestin therapy carries a rare increased risk for stroke and breast cancer, and if estrogen is inadequately opposed, an increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia and endometrial cancer, level one data. The absolute risks are reduced for all-cause mortality, fracture, diabetes mellitus, diabetes, and breast cancer in women aged younger than 60 years, level one data. So now we're going to move on to vasomotor symptoms. These are the FDA-approved indications for hormones. Number one would be vasomotor symptoms. Hormone therapy has been shown in double-blind randomized control trials to relieve vasomotor symptoms and is FDA-approved as first-line therapy for relief of moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms because of menopause. So many women get beta blockers or antidepressants for hot flashes when instead they should be getting hormones, you guys. This is what happened when we scared everybody off hormones. Okay, number two, prevention of bone loss. Hormone therapy has been shown in double-blind randomized control trials to prevent bone loss and in the WHI to reduce fractures in postmenopausal women without osteoporosis. The FDA indication includes prevention, but not treatment, of postmenopausal osteoporosis. Non-estrogen medications are preferred for treatment of existing osteoporosis. Number three, premature hypoestrogenism. This means the really young people, right, who lose their estrogen really early. Hormone therapy is FDA approved for women with hypoestrogenism resulting from hypogonadism, bilateral oophorectomy, or primary ovarian insufficiency. Health benefits have been shown with greater evidence for women with bilateral oophorectomy for menopause symptoms and for prevention of bone loss in observational studies and also helps them prevent heart disease and cognitive decline or dementia. Number four, genital urinary symptoms. Hormone therapy has been shown in randomized, randomized controlled trials to effectively treat symptoms of vulvovaginal atrophy, now called GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Hormone therapy is FDA approved to treat moderate to severe symptoms of vulvovaginal atrophy and dyspareunia, which means pain with sex, because of menopause, but with the preference for low-dose vaginal therapy if solely prescribed for vulvar or vaginal symptoms. Two vaginal therapies, vaginal estrogen and vaginal DHEA, have been FDA approved for treatment of moderate to severe dyspareunia, a symptom of vulvovaginal atrophy resulting from menopause. One oral therapy has FDA approval as well. I think that's osphema, osphena, and that's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So key points in that section, hormone therapy is FDA approved for four indications, moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms, prevention of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women, treatment of hypoestrogenism caused by hypogonadism, bilateral oophorectomy or premature ovarian insufficiency, and treatment of moderate to severe vulvovaginal symptoms. FDA guidance for treatment of genital urinary symptoms related to menopause in the absence of indications for systemic estrogen therapy suggests the use of low-dose topical estrogen. All right, com- now they go into compounded. This is guideline stuff, you guys. So when I'm on Instagram saying how we don't do compounded and pellets as first-line therapy, this is the data. Here we go. Compounded bioidentical hormones. The term bioidentical hormone therapy can be misleading because there are both government-approved and compounded bioidentical hormone therapies. Government-approved, which is FDA-approved in the United States, bioidentical hormones include estradiol, estrone, and medroxy pro- and micronized progesterone which are regulated and monitored for purity and efficacy. They are dispensed with package inserts containing extensive product information and may include black box warnings for adverse effects. In contrast, compounded bioidentical hormone therapies are prepared by a compounding pharmacist using a provider's prescription. These therapies may combine multiple hormones and use untested, unapproved combinations or formulations or are administered in non-standard or untested routes such as subdermal implants, pellets, or troches. Compounded bioidentical hormone therapy has been prescribed or dosed on the basis of serum, salivary, or urine hormone testing. However, the use of such testing to guide hormone therapy dosing is considered unreliable because of differences in hormone pharmacokinetics and absorption, diurnal variation, and inter-individual and intra-individual variability. What that meant is don't use urine or saliva tests to test your hormones. There is a dearth of safety and efficacy data with little to no high-quality pharmacokinetic data to provide evidence of safety and efficacy of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy and insufficient evidence to support overall clinical use of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy for treatment of menopause symptoms. Compounded bioidentical hormone therapy presents 
safety concerns, such as minimal government regulation and monitoring, overdosing and underdosing, presence of impurities and lack of sterility, lack of scientific efficacy and safety data, and lack of a label outlining risks. Patient preference for compounded bioidentical hormone therapy should be discussed. Prescribers should only consider compounded hormone therapy if women cannot tolerate a government-approved therapy for reasons such as allergies to ingredients in a government-approved hormone therapy formulation or for a dose or formulation not currently available in government-approved therapies. I think an example of this is testosterone. We don't have an FDA-approved testosterone. I digress. Patient preference alone should not be used to justify use of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy. Prescribers of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy should document the medical indication for a compounded bioidentical hormone over government-approved therapies. So key points. Compounded bioidentical hormone therapy presents safety concerns. That's level one data. Salivary and urine hormone testing to determine dosing are unreliable and not recommended. Serum hormone testing is rarely needed. That's level two and three data. Shared decision-making is important, but patient preference alone should not be used to justify the use of compounded bioidentical hormone preparations, level 3 data. And then situations in which compounded bioidentical hormones could be considered include allergies or dosages not available, level 3 data. So let's move on to menopause symptoms. Number one, vasomotor symptoms. Vasomotor symptoms are associated with diminished sleep quality, irritability, difficulty concentrating, reduced quality of life, and poor health status. Frequent vasomotor symptoms persisted on average 7.4 years in the study of women's health across the nation and appear to be linked to cardiovascular bone and cognitive risks. Compared with placebo, estrogen alone or estrogen progestin was found to reduce weekly symptoms frequencies by 75% and significantly reduce symptom severity with no other pharmacologic or alternative therapy found to provide more relief. Considering the dose, there are no appreciable differences in the efficacy of oral versus non-oral formulations, but estrogen progestin appears slightly more effective than estrogen alone. Lower doses of hormone therapy may take six to eight weeks to provide adequate symptom relief. Although the lowest dose approved estradiol weekly patch appears effective in treating vasomotor symptoms, it is FDA approved only for prevention of osteoporosis. Progestogen-only formulations have been found to be effective in treating vasomotor symptoms, but no long-term studies have addressed the safety of progestogen-only treatment of menopause symptoms. Vasomotor symptoms return in approximately 50% of women when hormone therapy is discontinued. There is no consensus about whether stopping abruptly or gradually tapering the dose is preferable. All right, number two, sleep disturbances. Sleep disturbances are common after menopause and begin in perimenopause. Sleep disruptions are strongly associated with vasomotor symptoms and a decreased quality of life. Poor sleep quality has been associated with mood fluctuations, memory problems, metabolic syndrome, obesity, and other cardiovascular risk factors. Short or very long sleep duration, poor sleep quality, and insomnia have been associated with greater cardiovascular risk. Hormone therapy in the dose in the form of low-dose estrogen or progestogen may improve chronic insomnia in menopausal women, with 14 of 23 studies reviewed showing positive results. There is some evidence that transdermal estrogen therapy may benefit sleep in perimenopausal women independent of vasomotor symptoms. Oral micronized progesterone has mildly sedating effects, reducing wakefulness without affecting daytime cognitive functions, possibly through a GABA agonistic effect and should therefore be administered at night. Take your progestin at night, guys. A systematic review and meta-analysis concluded that micronized progestin improved sleep onset latency, but not sleep duration or sleep efficiency in randomized control trials. I'm going to skip over the genital urinary symptom one because I feel like I have so many different podcasts on vaginal atrophy, vaginal estrogen, all that stuff, like follow me for more. But I feel like I talk about vaginal estrogen a lot. So I'm going to skip over it and head straight to sexual function because that's fun. Systemic hormone therapy and low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy provide effective treatment of general urinary syndrome and menopause, improving sexual problems by increasing lubrication, blood flow, and sensation in vaginal tissues. You guys, this is not in your head. We have studies on this. Studies have not found a significant effect of estrogen therapy on sexual interest arousal and orgasmic response, independent from its role in treating menopause symptoms. Remember, 
two most common reasons that women stop having sex after menopause. Menopausal hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms, and availability of partner. All right. If systemic hormone therapy is indicated in women with low libido, transdermal estrogen formulations may be preferred to oral given increased sex hormone binding globulin and reduced bioavailability of testosterone when you take oral estrogen. I'm going to skip over the primary ovarian insufficiency. I just don't feel like it applies to everybody. But again, go read these guidelines if you want. We're going to skip on two things everybody cares about, skin, hair, and special senses. Estrogen therapy may benefit wound healing through modifying inflammation, stimulating granulation tissue formation, and accelerating re-epithelialization. Estrogen therapy increased epidermal and dermal thickness, increased collagen and elastin content, and improved skin moisture with fewer wrinkles. Although menopause is associated with a decrease in hair density and female pattern hair loss, research on the role of hormone therapy in mitigating these changes is lacking. In the Women's Health Initiative, estrogen therapy reduced intraocular pressure in postmenopausal women and mitigated the risk for open-angle glaucoma in Black women. Similar effects were not seen for the estrogen progestin arm. Further, hormone therapy decreased the risk of neovascular and soft drusen age-related macular degeneration, but not early or late-stage macular degeneration. Evidence on the effects of hormone therapy on cataract, dry eye disease, and optic nerve disorders is mixed, and good randomized control trials are lacking. Observational data linking hormone therapy to hearing loss is mixed. Little is known about olfactory changes and hormone therapy. In small trials, hormone therapy appears to decrease dizziness or vertigo and improve postural balance. Next one we're going to go to is osteoporosis. Menopause is associated with increased bone resorption and estrogen decreases bone resorption. For osteoporosis treatment, hormone therapy has not been demonstrated in randomized control trials to reduce fractures in postmenopausal women with established osteoporosis. Therefore, hormone therapy does not carry an FDA indication for treatment of osteoporosis. In women who have osteoporosis, hormone therapy has not been demonstrated in randomized control trials to decrease fracture risk. In the Women's Health Initiative for women aged 50 to 79 years, enrolled without regard to bone density or fracture risk, estrogen plus progestin significantly increased lumbar spine and total hip bone mineral density relative to placebo and reduced fracture risk. In the setting of prevention, randomized control trials show that hormone therapy decreases fracture risk. A meta-analysis and a systemic review based primarily on the Women's Health Initiative demonstrated that five to seven years of hormone therapy significantly reduced risks of spine, hip, and non-vertebral fractures. During the Women's Health Initiative intervention phase in women of all ages, the estrogen progestin group had six fewer hip fractures per 10,000 women and six fewer vertebral fractures per 10,000 women compared with the placebo group. And they say, and the key points, in the absence of contraindications in women aged younger than 60 years or within 10 years of menopause onset, systemic hormone therapy is an appropriate therapy to protect against bone loss, level one evidence. Moving on to joint pain, the exact effect of estrogen on osteoarthritis remains controversial. There is no clearly observed association between hormone therapy use and osteoarthritis. In the Women's Health Initiative, women on combined estrogen plus progestin had less joint pain or stiffness compared with those on placebo, so it's 47% to 38%, and more joint discomfort after stopping. So they're saying we have level one evidence showing that women in the Women's Health Initiative and other studies have less joint pain or stiffness with hormone therapy compared with placebo, but there's need for further understanding of estrogen's potential on joint health. Now we do a side note, we do have some newer data showing that People who have low hormones, we'll call them hypogonadal people, both men and women, so low testosterone in men, low estrogen in women, have a higher rate of needing their shoulder replaced. We also have data showing decreased risk of frozen shoulder in women who are on hormones compared to the frozen shoulder risk of women who are not on hormones. Moving on to gallbladder and liver. Postmenopausal use of estrogen is associated with an increased risk of cholelithiasis, so gallbladder, gallbladder disease, and having your gallbladder removed. But they think the transdermal route of administration, which bypasses first-pass metabolism of the liver, has been associated with less risk of gallbladder disease in observational studies. It says in women with hepatitis C and with fatty liver, a slower fibrosis progression has been observed with use of hormone therapy. 
And observational studies report lower risk of gallstones with transdermal hormone therapy than with oral. All right, moving on to diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and body composition. In the Women's Health Initiative, women receiving continuous combined estrogen plus progestin had a statistically significant 19% reduction in the incidence of type 2 diabetes, translating to 16 fewer cases per 10,000 person years of therapy. In the estrogen alone cohort, there is a reduction of 14% in new diagnoses of type 2 diabetes, translating to 21 fewer cases per 10,000 person years. A meta-analysis of published studies found that estrogen progestin therapy reduced multiple components of the metabolic syndrome. Incidence of type 2 diabetes was decreased by 30%. A second smaller meta-analysis confirmed these findings and reported that women with type 2 diabetes using estrogen or estrogen progestin therapy had better glycemic control. The benefit reverses when hormone therapy is discontinued. For these reasons, hormone therapy can be considered for symptomatic menopausal women with type 2 diabetes. Weight and body composition. The menopause transition is associated with an increase in body fat and decrease in lean body mass, which results in an increase in the fat to lean ratio and decreased basal metabolic rate. After controlling for body size and ethnicity, the average weight gain during midlife in the menopause transition is 1.5 pounds per year. Central fat distribution also occurs after menopause after adjustment for aging, total body fat, and physical activity level. By about two years after the first Final menstrual period, weight changes flatten. Women who used hormone therapy did not have observable differences in the trajectory of weight or body fat gain compared with those who did not take hormones, although numbers are relatively small. Estrogen progestin therapy either has no effect on weight or is associated with less weight gain in women who are using it than in women who are not. In the Women's Health Initiative, women randomized to hormone therapy with estrogen with or without a progestin had no statistically significant difference in slowing of weight gain and a lesser increase in waist circumference over the first three years of use compared with those randomized to placebo. Increasing physical activity was independently associated with less weight gain over time. All right, let's go on to cognition. So this is where we go, and I talked about this in other podcast episodes, the critical window or timing hypothesis or the healthy cell bias hypothesis, meaning you got to start these hormones early after menopause in order to see a protection on the brain. The critical window or timing hypothesis holds that estrogen can confer cognitive benefits if given early in the menopause transition, but that later use is neutral or detrimental. The healthy cell bias hypothesis holds that estrogen confers cognitive benefits when the neural substrate is healthy, but not diseased. So if you start it earlier, it's going to be better for you than if you start it later or if you already have some disease on board. Several large clinical trials indicate that hormone therapy does not improve memory or other cognitive abilities and that conjugated estrogen plus a progestin may be harmful for memory when initiated in women aged older than 65 years. This is why you're supposed to start it early, you guys. Let's talk specifically about Alzheimer's disease. Four observational studies provide support for the opinion that the timing of hormone therapy initiation is a significant determinant of Alzheimer's disease risk, with early initiation lowering risk and later initiation associated with increased risk. 18-year follow-up data from the Women's Health Initiative showed a reduction in Alzheimer's disease mortality in women randomized to hormone therapy. And this effect was significant for estrogen alone, but not for estrogen plus progestin, and was driven by women aged in their 70s at the time of enrollment. All-cause dementia. In the Women's Health Initiative study, estrogen plus progestin doubled the risk of all-cause dementia when initiated in women aged older than 65 years, whereas estrogen alone did not significantly increase the risk of dementia. The effect of hormone therapy may be modified by baseline cognitive function with more favorable effects in women with normal cognitive function before initiating hormone therapy. So key points, hormone therapy is not recommended at any age to prevent or treat decline in cognitive function or dementia. Initiating hormone therapy in women aged older than 65 increases the risk for dementia. And estrogen therapy may have cognitive benefits when initiated immediately after hysterectomy with bilateral oophorectomy, but hormone therapy in the early natural postmenopause period has neutral effects on cognitive function. All right, let us go on to the next page. The next part is depression. 
Use of hormone therapy to treat menopause symptoms such as vasomotor symptoms in midlife women with depression should be considered. Vasomotor symptoms increase the risk for elevated depressive symptoms, in part because of nocturnal vasomotor symptoms and sleep interruption. And on a day-to-day basis, vasomotor symptoms co-occur with negative mood and predict negative mood the next day. Vasomotor symptoms appear to be more strongly associated with the onset of depressive symptoms than depressive disorders. For perimenopausal women with depression, there's evidence that estrogen therapy improves depressive symptoms to a degree similar to an antidepressant medication. This antidepressant effect of estrogen therapy applies to perimenopausal women with and without vasomotor symptoms. Estrogen therapy does not appear to be effective in treating depressive disorders in postmenopausal women, suggesting a window of opportunity in the perimenopause. There is some evidence that estrogen therapy enhances mood and improves well-being in non-depressed postmenopausal women. Initial evidence suggests that hormone therapy, specifically transdermal estradiol with intermittent micronized progestin, may prevent the onset of depressive symptoms in euthymic perimenopausal women. Estrogen therapy may augment clinical response to antidepressants in midlife and older women, preferably when also indicated for other concurrent menopause-related symptoms, such as vasomotor symptoms. Estrogen is not government-approved to treat mood disturbances. All right, moving on. Cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. Pop quiz, kiddos. What's the number one killer of women? Heart disease. I always say not enough people care about heart disease. Observational data and reanalysis of older studies by age or time since menopause, including the WHI, suggests that for healthy women who are within 10 years of the menopause transition and who have bothersome menopause symptoms, the benefits of hormone therapy, estrogen or estrogen progestin together, outweigh its risks with fewer cardiovascular disease events in younger versus older women. The 2015 Cochrane Review of Randomized Control Trial data found that hormone therapy initiated fewer than 10 years after menopause onset lowered coronary heart disease in postmenopausal women. It also found a reduction in all-cause mortality, 30% reduction in all-cause mortality at Cochrane Review, you guys. If men could take a pill that reduced their overall mortality by 30%, don't you think they'd all be on it? Or back? No, in, in this study, there was no increased risk of stroke, but there was an increased risk in blood clot. And this does not say if this was oral versus transdermal, but that would that would be my first question on it. So now they're looking at the Women's Health Initiative. For estrogen alone, coronary heart disease, heart attack, and coronary artery bypass grafting or percutaneous coronary intervention showed a lower hazard ratio in women aged younger than 60 years and fewer than 10 years since menopause onset. In the 50 to 59-year-old age group, the hazard ratio for coronary heart disease was was elevated, but not statistically significant. When data from the two Women's Health Initiative trials were combined and analyzed, a reduction in all-cause mortality was shown in younger, but not in older women. Hazard ratios in women aged 50 to 59, 60 to 69, and 70 to 79 years were 0.69, 1.04, and 1.13. What this means is the 30% reduction in all-cause mortality was for only for women between the ages of 50 and 59. This is why it's recommended to start your hormones young. This is why they believe in the timing hypothesis or healthy cell hypothesis is you can't throw hormones on people who haven't seen hormones in over 10 years. Or you can, but you're going to have increased risk. For women who initiated hormone therapy more than 10 years from menopause, onset aged older than 60, a 2015 Cochrane meta-analysis found no evidence that hormone therapy had an effect on coronary heart disease or all-cause mortality, and there was an increased risk of stroke. 2020 systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials showed similar results as the 2015 Cochrane analysis for older women who initiated hormone therapy. Compared with placebo or non-users of hormone therapy, initiating hormone therapy in women aged 60 years of older or after 10 years since menopause had a null effect on coronary heart disease and all-cause mortality, but was associated with a higher risk of stroke and venous thromboembolism blood clot. The 2015 Cochrane meta-analysis found no increased risk of stroke in women who initiated hormone therapy aged younger than 60 years or fewer than 10 years from menopause onset. And then going to blood clot, women who began hormone therapy fewer than 10 years after menopause onset or who were aged younger than 60 years did have a higher risk of blood clot compared to placebo. Kelly saying something right here. This increased risk is still much lower than the increased risk of blood clot with birth control, which many people take 
because they accept that the risk is still small. Transdermal hormone therapy has not been associated with blood clot risk in observational studies. Limited observational data and systemic, systematic reviews suggest less risk with transdermal hormone therapy than oral. However, comparative randomized control trials are lacking. So we have level, this is the key points from that section. We have level one data saying for healthy symptomatic women aged younger than 60 or within 10 years of menopause onset, the favorable effects of hormone therapy on coronary heart disease and all-cause mortality should be considered against potential rare increased risks of breast cancer, venous thromboembolism, and stroke. Hormone therapy is not government approved for primary or secondary cardioprotection. Let's look at breast cancer. Remember, Women's Health Initiative, two things on that. Number one, estrogen alone, decreased risk of breast cancer. And if you've got breast cancer, decreased risk of mortality with the breast cancer. And then in the estrogen progestin arm, some people still believe that there maybe is a progestin increased risk to breast cancer, but other experts say, no, it's the increased risk in that arm was because the placebo arm had already been, some of them had already been on estrogen in the past, thus giving them a overall lower breast cancer risk compared to the currently active estrogen progestin arm. And attributable risk, attributable risk. So, so it depends. You either pick one, believe that it does, or estrogen and progestin together does or doesn't increase risk of your breast cancer risk based upon the placebo arm already taking estrogen, right? Which made it have lower risk. But let's say, let's believe just for sense of argument that estrogen plus progestin increases your risk of breast cancer. Okay, well, how much does it increase your risk of breast cancer? That's what this next paragraph is for. The attributable risk of breast cancer in women mean age 63 randomized to estrogen plus progestin in the Women's Health Initiative is less than one additional case of breast cancer diagnosed per 1,000 users annually. So you have to put 1,000 people on estrogen progestin and one of them would get breast cancer. But like above what, what the normal risk of breast cancer is. And this risk is slightly greater than the observed with one daily glass of wine. Less, this is less risk than two daily glasses of wine and similar to the risk reported with obesity and low physical activity. So this is why I say we're scared of the wrong things, you guys. We need to keep our lean body mass high, our fat body mass low, and we need to exercise. Those are much more increased cancer risks, breast cancer risks, than the possibly theoretical estrogen progestin cancer risk. Compared with placebo or non-users of hormone therapy, there appears to be no additive effect of hormone therapy with age or elevated personal breast cancer risk factors on breast cancer incidence. So what that means is if you have a family history or your increased risk of breast cancer, adding hormones doesn't increase your risk more. Observational evidence suggests that hormone therapy use does not further increase the relative risk of breast cancer in women with a family history of breast cancer in women after oophorectomy for BRCA1 or BRCA2, or in women having undergone a benign breast biopsy. It's a very important statement because people ask me all the time, yeah, but I have BRCA1, BRCA2. Yeah, but my mom had breast cancer. We don't think hormones increase your risk over the risk that you already have for having those things. A prospective longitudinal cohort study of BRCA1 genetic variant carriers without prior history of breast cancer who underwent bilateral oophorectomy, median age 43.4, showed no increased risk of developing breast cancer associated with any use of hormone therapy after a mean follow-up of 7.6 years. However, there was a difference between estrogen and estrogen progestin with a non-significant increased risk of breast cancer risk associated with the estrogen progestin. The two-sister study of 1,419 sister-matched cases of breast cancer in women aged younger than 50 years and 1,665 controls showed no increased risk of young onset breast cancer with use of estrogen progestin therapy and unopposed estrogen use was associated with reduced diagnosis of young onset breast cancer. They do say that if you are on hormones, you can have an increased breast density on your mammograms. So more mammograms and breast biopsies were performed in women receiving estrogen progestin than placebo. They say that that's why increased breast density. I think there's going to be more and more data coming out looking at hormones after a breast cancer diagnosis. And 
what this guideline paper does. I'll read you the pertinent ones on this guideline, but there's going to be more and more studies coming out. We've got 5 million women in this country who are post breast cancer diagnosis and are miserable and they're vocal and they want hormones. And I think that things are changing. Mark my word. Okay. So we've got mixed data is basically what we're going to say here. Two randomized control trials supporting conflicting outcomes of breast cancer recurrence with hormone therapy. One study showed an elevated risk of breast cancer recurrence in hormone therapy users relative to non-users, whereas another trial, which was the Stockholm Breast Cancer Study, showed no effect on breast cancer recurrence in hormone therapy users relative to non-users, but did show an increased risk of breast cancer in the contralateral breast. Although systemic use of hormone therapy in survivors of breast cancer is generally not advised currently, if symptoms of estrogen deficiency are severe and unresponsive to non-hormone options, women in consultation with their oncologist may choose hormone therapy after being fully informed about the risks and benefits. Several observational studies in women with a history of breast cancer have shown a decreased risk of recurrent breast cancer or neutral effects compared with non-users. In addition, mortality was reported to be reduced in breast cancer survivors who used hormone therapy relative to those who did not. My theory on this, again, we're decreasing heart disease risk and heart disease is still the number one killer of people who've had breast cancer. So that's probably why. Again, I'm guessing because it doesn't say it in the article. And four meta-analyses reported similar findings. Breast cancer mortality and hormone therapy. Only one randomized trial, the WHI, examined breast cancer-specific mortality. After 20 years of median cumulative follow-up, estrogen alone was associated with significantly lower breast cancer incidence and breast cancer mortality compared with placebo. The mortality risk of breast cancer in hormone therapy users has been reported to be reduced in many but not all observational studies. And then so key points I think here are really important. The risk of breast cancer related to hormone therapy use is low with estimates indicating a rare occurrence, less than one additional case per 1,000 women per year of hormone therapy use, or three additional cases per 1,000 women when used for five years. And women should be counseled about the risk of breast cancer with hormone therapy, putting the data into perspective with risks similar to that of modifiable risk factors such as two daily alcoholic beverages, obesity, and low physical activity. Let's go quickly. Uh, we're going to quickly talk about ovarian cancer. In the Women's Health Initiative, there is no significant increase in ovarian cancer risk with estrogen progestin therapy. Use of oral contraceptives is associated with a significant reduction in ovarian cancer risk. That's level one data. In women with a history of ovarian cancer, benefits of hormone therapy use generally outweigh risks, especially with bothersome vasomotor symptoms or early menopause. Use of hormone therapy is not advised in women with hormone-dependent ovarian cancers. Short-term hormone therapy use appears safe in women with BRCA1, BRCA2 who undergo risk-reducing bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy before the average age of menopause. Going next to colorectal cancer, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer and the third leading cause of cancer death in U.S. women. Risk factors include physical inactivity, obesity, smoking, and decreased use of screening strategies. Observational studies generally support a reduced risk of colorectal cancer in current hormone therapy users compared with never users. In observational studies, both estrogen and estrogen progestin are associated with reduced colorectal cancer risk and mortality. In the WHI, use of estrogen progestin, but not estrogen alone, was associated with a reduced risk of colorectal cancer compared with placebo, decreasing this risk by almost 40%, you guys. They go on lung cancer, they say there is uh, estrogen, hormones are probably neutral on it. And then we go on to how long should it be on my hormones? And this is when people ask, like, people will say, like, my doctor told me to stop, my nurse practitioner told me to stop. The 2022 NAMS guidelines say the arbitrary age-based stopping rule is not clinically appropriate. Frequent vasomotor symptoms persist on average 7.4 years, and for many, more than 10 years. This is fascinating. In a study of Swedish women aged older than 85 years, 16% reported hot flashes at least several times per week, and up to 8% of women continued to have hot flashes for 20 years or longer after menopause. So basically the point of that is if you're doing well, you should every year have a risk-benefit discussion with your provider, but there's no age at which you have to stop at this point. Hormone therapy does not need to be routinely discontinued in women aged older than 60 or 65 years, level 3 data. 
There is no general rule for stopping systemic hormone therapy in a woman aged 65 years. The Beers criteria from the American Geriatric Society has warnings against the use of hormone therapy in women aged older than 65 years. However, the recommendation to routinely discontinue systemic hormone therapy in women aged 65 years or older is neither cited or supported by evidence, nor is it recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists or the North American Menopause Society. And although vasomotor symptoms generally improve with time, meaning like if you take hormones for longer and then you stop, like at some point you'll you'll be less likely to have hot flashes, but hot flashes will recur in approximately 50, 50% of women after discontinuation. But we what we do know is that GSM, so genital urinary syndrome of menopause, worsens with prolonged estrogen deficiency. So women should be provided with treatment options on discontinuation of systemic hormone therapy. So if you're going to stop your systemic hormones, start on a vaginal estrogen to help protect your pelvis. All right, guys, I think that that is what you need to know. So print out the guidelines, bring them into your doctor, listen to this podcast, share it with your girlfriends. Lots of good summaries to get you guys comfortable with Hormones are medications. Medications have some side effects. But when you look at what side effects a lot of medications have, we take medications with way higher risk of side effects than hormone therapy all the time. So get educated. Education is the number one way to decrease fear. Do what's right for you. See a provider. See another provider. Ask why. Understand what your risks are. Understand what risk category you're in. Right. If you're 68 and you want to start hormones, your risk is much higher than if you're 47. Do what's right for you. Live as healthy and long of a life as you want and don't live your life based upon fear, especially since we have great data these days. All right, guys, I love you so much. That took an hour and I did not even read it word for word. Ooh, good stuff. Till next time, you're not broken. I love you. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work to go 